Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're shining a spotlight on value investing today with institutional portfolio manager Naveed Rahman. As inflation remains a stubborn thorn in the side of the global economy, Naveed begins today's show reflecting on the news of yet another 75 basis point hike by the U.S. Federal Reserve. Also on today's show with host Pamela Ritchie, Naveed shares an update on positioning and the investing approach of Fidelity Global Intrinsic Value Class. This includes being constantly on the hunt for high-quality, cheap companies that are cash-generative. Among other topics covered today include companies right-sizing their debt, positioning in Japan, including a look at the yen and Japanese central bank, valuations of small caps versus large caps, and consumer trends. This podcast was recorded on September 22nd, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You told us last time, Naveed, that uh, you were never in camp transitory. But still, I mean, was yesterday not somewhat surprising on some level to you? Yeah, absolutely, Pamela. I think that it's it's important to remember just what the market was thinking and, and what the Fed itself said a year ago. I, I reading commentary from, from the chairman a year ago saying that inflation was transitory. They didn't expect to raise rates until the back half of 2023. Uh, quantitative tightening would begin at some point this year. And uh, and we're in, a, as you point out, a profoundly different place. I mean, rates are up almost 250 basis points this year in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, every major central bank except for Japan you know, has, has, has hiked rates. Um, so I think that remind it reminds us that you know, predicting the future from a macro perspective is difficult, um, and and I'm not saying that we were so fantastic in predicting exactly what was going to happen. But from our perspective, the companies that we invest in, you know, were seeing inflation not just related to the supply chain, but they were sort of really seeing inflation all through sort of their businesses, and our expectation was that. What we were experiencing last year, Pamela, was a lot of goods inflation as people remained right. locked down, and and that that we expected to to gradually transition to services employ uh, services inflation because you know we were sort of unshackled you know at some point between last year and this year, but the economy globally in the U.S. and Canada cannot turn on a dime. There are people that left professions in in the services sector that found other jobs. Demand spiked, and 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 so we're we're here in a place where, you know, like we think uh, what we expected last year is playing out, which is that you know inflation may have topped out in, in the summer of this year with a with the U.S. CPI readings in the eight eight and a half percent. Right. But the tr- direction of travel may be a gradual one instead of a dark. Um, remind us. Um how how you invest because you mentioned the way that the you know that we invest. Um, so it's global. It has a value style to it, ultimately. 
Um, but it, it also isn't necessarily the biggest companies in every sector. So just That's kind right. of go through exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, so, your universe. So our, our, yeah, the portfolio is called Global Intrinsic Value, and we uh, tend to focus uh, you know, uh, pretty much exclusively on small and mid-cap high quality, cheap companies um, that are cash generative. And um, it's uh, it's an investing style that's sort of a, a true north for us. We're not leaning into the style when it's in favor and out of the style when it's not in favor. We're, you know, I think our, our the data would back us up and say that if you do a good job curating a portfolio of reasonably priced, high quality, cash generative companies, uh, you will outperform not just like sort of like the Canadian markets or the US markets, you, you'll outperform global markets over the long haul. And when you're in a period where rates are grinding up and inflation remains above what we've experienced the last decade and a half, that's a really nice tailwind for us as well, because uh -huh. there is a preponderance of cyclical, reasonably priced companies that the, that the market is not, you know, sort of discounting a huge uh, rate of growth. And, and these companies are less, less impacted by rates going up, less hurt than sort of the fast growth company that's predicated on this fantastic earnings number 12 years out. You know, it's really interesting because we, we've spoken a lot about, you know, energy companies as an example, but other companies too, um, using a period through the pandemic in a lot of cases to sort of right size their debt. Um, interest rates are obviously still low. A lot of people have renegotiated yeah. what they needed to do, companies. We know that about the energy um, side of things in that sector, but you know, from your perspective, the companies that you look at, were, were they also in the midst of doing that? Are they looking in better shape ultimately? Yeah, I mean, uh, and and actually, we tend to be invested in companies that have low levels of leverage to begin with. I think one of the advantages of being a cheap, high quality cash generative company is that you do not depend on the kindness of strangers. You do not have to go to the debt markets on a regular basis because your business throws off so much cash that you know if you are a good management team, you can self-fund your investment, do a little bit of a share buyback, and probably pay a dividend, and and not have to sort of depend on the vagaries. And 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 you're, and you're right, Pamela. I mean, if you are going out uh, and and trying to sort of you know uh, raise debt capital today, I mean, it is a much less hospitable environment than it was a year to a year and a half ago. Um, and you know, energy is a great example of of, of where. Um, you know, hmm. a lot of management teams got religion, quote unquote. Um, right. Just, you know, there's nothing like 12 years of suffering to really focus the mind on what, what needs to happen. Um, and, and energy is a sector that this portfolio was launched in Canada, I think, in 2015. We were underweight energy the whole time until probably late, nine, sorry, mid-2020, late 2020. So it's a sector we avoided because it was consistently cheap but not high quality. But a couple of things did change. Uh, one was uh, that supply demand, uh, the dynamics got much more favorable. A decade of underinvestments that set the seeds for a period of really tight markets. And secondarily, the management teams of a handful of the companies we've invested in, especially exposed to US natural gas, um, are now compensated for um, free cash flow and earnings growth, not just the top right. line. Uh, and that's a sea change in sort of the compensation structure of these companies. Uh, and so we paid attention to that. And then and then we did extract a pound of flesh because energy companies need to be not just a little cheaper than the market, but substantially cheaper than the market for us to be interested. And, and they got to those places in 20, 
2020 and 2021. It's a bit more of a mixed call today because they have certainly outperformed. Um, but optically, they're still the cheapest part of the market from on a sector basis, fastest earnings growth and cheapest PE. So I'm assuming that's that's you're positioned within that or what, underweight, overweight. Tell, we tell are overweight that. energy. I have been for uh, um, for the better part of a year. Um, and uh, but again, there's not a that's a sector where I just I don't want to speak on a forward-looking basis. We we are very mindful of valuations in that sector. Energy stocks are on a tighter leash than a consumer staples company that might be in our portfolio or an industrial company in our portfolio because, you know, you can only control so much as an energy management team in an energy right. company. You are, you know, the, a price taker, not, 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 not a price maker, right? So. Interesting. That's that's completely fascinating. Um, well, since we're talking a little bit about positioning, where, where else, maybe things to update us on where things have changed? I mean, markets yeah. have certainly changed. Have, have you right. made any changes you can update us we, on? We, yeah, we try to be flexible there. And, um, you know, we we had been underweight um, uh, technology for, for a while. But that as, as our viewers know, that's a sector that has been under duress and has underperformed the market, which is market itself has been down, obviously, for the last year and change. But tech has been down more. Um, so that is a place that we have been slowly covering our, our, our underweight and uh, and it's a place we are, you know, we're constantly on the hunt for opportunities and, you know, we're finding, um, you know, uh, tech outsourcing companies that are trading at, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 times earnings, um, mm. six, seven, eight percent free cash flow yields. I should emphasize, as you said at the beginning, Pamela, when we say tech, we're not talking about the large cap U.S. fang right. names. Those are oh, um, they, they, they remain relatively expensive, and there we tend to focus on smaller and mid cap companies. So it's a little bit of a, outside of our wheelhouse. So it's more the boring tech that enables technology to work: distributors, suppliers, business process, outsourcers, things of that sort. Kind of not in the limelight tech, if you will. Right. Okay. Fascinating to to kind of get a sense of that. And and what else? I mean, we've also seen certain areas of so-called defensive plays ultimately do very well, but then also also change it up in the markets. I mean, a lot has changed in a year. Right, right. You know, we um, uh, some of what is traditional defense. We are. Let, let me back up for a second. Um, one of the advantages of our portfolio, it's not an explicit goal that we have going in, but when you buy cheap, high-quality cash generative companies tend to have a lower beta profile, a lower risk profile. Historically, our portfolio has had a beta of roughly 0.8 versus the market. So call it 20% less volatile. But oh. we don't get get there by explicitly seeking out the lowest beta companies. It's a really natural outgrowth of, of high quality cash generative, um, reasonably priced companies. And in fact, we have a lower beta than the market while being underweight some traditionally low beta sectors like utilities and REITs. Um, you know, part of that is a valuation-driven call for us. Utes have already done well, uh, and, and and you've been paid a little bit for their defensive qualities already. And and we're just finding better opportunities in other areas like uh, the consumer um, staple sector, uh, consumer discretionary, uh, and then and then healthcare is really a, a sector that. Um, for the last several years has been a really nice overlap ground for us where value, quality, and cash generation have all come together really nicely. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. You know, it's um, it's just interesting to sort of think about what you're talking about with energy and, you know, when the fund 
got going in Canada in 2015. I mean, last decade, decade before the pandemic, was very, very different ultimately to what it seems like this decade is shaping up to. Or, or, or is that wrong? I mean, do, do you feel like the yeah, lack yeah, no, of inflation I, for a decade right. is really going to change things going forward? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that, that's a great question, and it it is um. In a way, coming back to where we began the conversation, that might be the reason that the market was so optimistic that the Fed would hike rates this year and then quickly pivot to lowering rates as soon as there was a sign of an economic um, uh, uh, sort of slowdown. That was the playbook in an era of low inflation and low growth in the last decade. But we are in a really different time today um, where, you know, if I was in the shoes of the Fed, um, and I raised rates, and that caused unemployment to tick up, that caused economic activity to slow down. I don't have the toolkit of lowering rates right away that I did in the last decade because headline inflation and core inflation might very well be in the 5 to 6% range while the economy is slowing down. So if, if that were to happen, then you sort of, uh, you know, then this playbook that we've been accustomed to, uh, you know, is not one that, that we can we can rely on because you certainly can't um, have, you know, the Fed has two mandates. It, it, it's important to remember, you know, stable, uh, stable prices and full employment. Um, and they have indicated to us and, and probably rightly so that at different times in the economic cycle, you've got to focus more on one versus the other. In an era of really low inflation, they were not concerned with with sort of um, the, the the prospect of inflation spiraling out of control. So they could really laser like focus on full employment. Right. Uh, things have reversed in the other direction. Okay, they are much more concerned about getting inflation under control. Um, and it's interesting that uh, you know Chairman Powell's uh, I think PhD thesis at, at Princeton was, was about sort of some of the mistakes that, that the Fed made in the 1970s, where it was too quick to ease um, at, at, at times of economic slowdown until until Paul Volcker came down and sort of put the hammer down as it were. Um, and, and so I think I think that's, um, you know, the past doesn't always repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, and, and so we should be wary that um, the, the, the reaction function that we were used to, you know, may, may be different uh, uh, going forward. And so coming to our portfolio, that, that influences sort of what we're thinking about. What are the kinds of stocks that can navigate a higher inflation environment uh, that have business models that do well. And, and I, when I look at the portfolio, you know, there's not a, a singular theme, but it is interesting that we own distributor companies in technology, in industrials, um, uh, in, in, in the consumer sector. And, and one of the advantages of owning companies that are in the distribution business is you're sort of the middleman uh, and, and in an era of four, five, six, eight percent inflation. Right. You do that on the end uh, as a buyer, but you pass that on to your end customer because, you know, you're, you're, you're really in that liminal in, in between space. And and you've got if, if you if you are a well run distributor, you have a, a lock on the best supply and you have among the, be, you know, the better customers and um, and it's easy to pass on a one percent uh, tick up, you know, as if, if if the input costs are rising six, uh, the end, end, end cost of the industrial good you're selling might be rising seven and a half, and you know, and you're pocketing that as as a distributor. It's a really it's a really nice inflation hedged business model, as it were. That's fascinating. I mean, I feel like I want to ask you about whether supply chains are getting better or worse. Many will say they're getting better. Can can they still pass? Pass along some costs, though. People are so scared about supply chains that maybe the yeah, it's, of- it's 
Yeah. Broadly speaking, it is getting better. We see that in, in things like shipping container costs are down, you know, really meaningfully versus at the peaks they hit a year ago. Um, the 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 lag time is is shrinking. But I think what we're observing is that that'll have a positive impact on on inflation on a going forward basis. But that is being more than offset by services inflation. So goods inflation is coming down. But so think of the cost of getting a haircut, you know, uh, in in Canada or uh, or or going out to a restaurant or what have you. Those things, uh, the labor costs associated with that, uh, is 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 more than offsetting um, uh, the the goods inflation coming down. So it is a little bit of I, I am sympathetic to the to the, the challenge that, that these central banks have because uh, you know it's um, it's difficult to control once inflation is percolating through the economy in, in, in myriad ways. Um, and, and the reason that all these central banks are, are, are I think, taking a strident view is that the, the worst case outcome is that inflation expectations get unanchored. So when you see surveys around the world, if, if, if you ask uh, the average American consumer what they expect inflation to be in three or five years, those are still muted and lower than inflation levels today. If those expectations start to really get unanchored, then you sort of run the risk of kind of, you know, it feeding on which itself. Is, which is why they're stepping in with with such, to some people, you know, harsh measures. But it, it seems to be the medicine that's being given at this point. You're global. You look around the world for opportunities. Can you speak to your positioning in Japan and how you might um, ultimately manage or look at the currency uh, okay. there given yesterday's news? Yeah, no, it's a that's a very topical uh, question. Um, the, the news, of course, being that that Japan getting in there ultimately to support it's intervening in the currency uh, markets, right? Yeah. Right. It's uh, I think the yen is down thirty-five or forty percent versus the dollar year to date, which is an extraordinary sum. Because if you think about it, the yen, along with a couple of other OECD countries, are haven currencies. When I mean, in a period of volatility, right. they, they typically strengthen. It's not happening now, but it's really a function of the fact that. Japan, the Japanese central bank is um, is kind of on an island, having not tightened yet, maintained very loose accommodative policy, while the Bank of Canada, the Fed, the the, the European Central Bank have all been hiking. Uh, banks and emerging markets are hiking massively as well. So Japan is is by by function of that, um, uh, you know, uh, getting pressure. We, you know, tend not to make big macro bets like we're uh, we're not. We are exposed to Japan, right? But we have had we we do have you know uh, a small overweight position in that um, there are a lot of um, you know really high quality cash generative businesses in Japan. Many of them, by the way, have input costs in Japanese yen and are selling into North America, Europe. So they have right. revenues in, in dollars and euros and they have costs in yen. So this weakening of the currency is very margin accretive for those companies. Um, and, uh, um, and you know, we're, we're big believers long term on mean reversion. So uh, it's not going to take a lot. For the Japanese currency to start to stage a, a comeback again, I'm not a currency expert, but if you look at history, you know if they get off the mat and start raising rates gradually, like that will be a you know a sea change, and and, and we could get historically the Japanese yen has had violent periods of sort of strength uh, against other currencies, you know uh, uh, when when things like this happen. So um, 
I think it would be dangerous to kind of extrapolate that this weakening of the Japanese yen is going to persist forever. Um, we hopefully, you know, we get mean version, we'll get a bit of a catch up and, and, and that should help our Japanese stocks. But we're not invested on that thesis. We're invested on on sort of the fundamentals of of those companies. Um, but we're, we're really mindful of the exposure given the historic movement that you're, you're talking about. Fascinating. So, yeah, I was looking forward to asking you that as well, investors. Uh, looking for your thoughts on that. A couple of other. So this question, um, Naveed, thoughts on small caps in this environment? You know, are you finding that valuations have, have dropped, creating opportunities? I mean, how do you look at that? There, there's sort of two edges to that sword, isn't right, there? Right, right. Um, so, and I think I'll answer that question in, in two ways. So, so first, relative to larger cap companies, the valuations are, are, are getting much more and more interesting. Small caps have underperformed in this um, broad market sell-off. So, so, you know, by function of that, they're getting cheaper relative to, to their bigger cap brethren. And then secondarily, you know, a phenomenon, um, Pamela, that, that's important for our viewers to recognize is that we went through a long period of time where the number of public companies came down and that really impacted small caps. So I, I think, you know, in the U.S., as an example, you know, we had something like 6,000 listed companies 20 years ago, and that was down to below fours uh, not that long ago. But since the pandemic, um, there have actually been something like 450 U.S. small cap IPOs. There have been about 200 companies that have de-SPAC'd or SPACs that have, you know, uh, acquired companies and taken them public. So the opportunity set is is for the first time in a long time starting to reverse, and there is a, you know a lot more stock picking opportunity in small cap than there was just just a few years ago. Um, it's it's because uh, the, the the decline in the number of stocks one gets to choose from, you know, that, that was a worry, worrying trend. A lot of these companies were taken out by private equity companies, uh, went away from the public markets. But it's nice to see those come back. Now, not all of those are great investments, and so you've got to sort of do your work. And, and pick and choose and find the ones that, um, you know, that that, uh, that are good businesses run by capable management teams. That, that's what we're really trying to do. Completely fascinating. Um, so tell us a little bit about the consumer as you see it right now. It fits into the, the small cap story, obviously, the economic story. Um, many will say that they're actually healthier than you would think because we've had all this stimulus. But um, how do you look at that? Yeah, and and I um I broadly agree with that uh, the line of questioning that you had, Pamela, which is that um you know typically going into on the front end of a possible recession, you know you worry about the consumer and you worry about sort of credit losses that that might ensue from a from a weakening consumer, and um and you know relative to other um, uh, times in history when we're, we're entering in this cycle, like you know it's not as as consumer is largely less leveraged than they are typically coming into a crisis. Um, uh, the pandemic era stimulus that helped sort of the low end and middle end consumer around the world, like is, is sort of a game changing thing uh, uh, versus past cycles. Uh, but uh, I guess the uh, the but there, it's a big one, is that housing and the home tends to be the biggest asset for most middle class consumers around the world. And with the U.S., you know, 30-year mortgage being above 6% today versus being at, you know, about 3% a year ago, you know, that is, is, is we, we were watching for the impact on housing and home values because that will impact the consumer, uh, their ability to access credit and, and sort of the overall credit worthiness. Um, so, I mean, I, I think um, we're, we're picking and choosing. Um, 
and I think it's important to remember that the stock market is is really good at anticipating what's going to happen. So a lot of consumer stocks, a lot of stocks in the in the two consumer sectors have already meaningfully underperformed, anticipating a recession. Um, financials have 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 underperformed, anticipating a recession, and right. we're actually you know finding opportunity um, on, on on consumer exposed financial companies. Um, within a handful of, of, of consumer stocks, more in the staple side, where they're doing something um, absolutely crucial that is not that discretionary. That you know that um, where they offer good value to the consumer from from a price standpoint. Um, so um, it's a, it is a classic sort of. There are some risks, but the market has started to discount many of those risks. So we're, we're actually fishing in that pond as we speak. Um, um, especially if, um, you know, uh, Fidelity's uh, macroeconomic research team is correct. And, and there is a chance that if a recession that we have, you know, may be sort of more of a garden variety, shallow recession, dissimilar to the uh, COVID pandemic, dissimilar to the global financial crisis. I mean, I think not every recession has to be a 40-year like flood like we experienced. Uh, you know, uh, the, the U.S. Oh. as an example has had 12 recessions, you know, post-World War II, right? So it's a some of those are not not fun, but certainly not as as problematic as the last one we experienced. So maybe just on that, just speak to sort of well, I mean, ultimately the the value of, of compounding, but but when you have some downside capture, there's just uh, perhaps a better ability there, which I think yeah, is yeah, I think I think the way it really comes home for me is that you know for U.S. investors, this team has managed a fund called low price stock for 30 years, and and I think what's remarkable to me is that we have outperformed our benchmark after fees by roughly 350 basis points per annum. So a really exceptional number over a long period of time. But what I think is striking for our, our, our viewers is that the upside capture on that portfolio has averaged about 70%. So mm-hmm. in rising markets, when the market is up 10, we're usually up seven. So how do you outperform the market by three and a half percent a year while only having 70, 72% upside capture? You do that to your question, Pamela, by protecting in down markets. So when 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 the market enters a choppy period, a period of volatility, by owning more stable, more cash generative, uh, uh, less earnings volatile companies, go down less in the market, protect the principal in down periods, and then participate in up markets. And the math, you know, really works out in your favor. I mean, if you're down 50%, you have to be up 100 just to get back to zero. The way you avoid that risk is try not to own stocks that go down 50% in the first place, um, you know, which is, um, uh, which is, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's very simple when we talk about it, but that is, you know, we are core and core quality value investors. And most of the stocks we own don't have these mass drawdowns because we didn't pay a really high price coming in. Like the, the challenge of the market today is that there are these, 40, 50 PE stocks or 10 times sales stocks that have re-rated, um, the, the earnings might still come through, but the problem is you just paid way too much at the outset. And that's a, that's a risk we really try to be mindful of on, on the way in. You introduced us to Sam, Morgan, and, and also just to Salem and, and you know, Joel also still being part of the team. I wonder if you can just sort of briefly yeah, absolutely. talk about the team. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we 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 announced uh, last November that um, uh, Joel, after a long career, uh, is planning to retire at the end of 2023. So 
kind of a two and a half year uh, <laughs> premature announcement on purpose. Um, so he's with us, remains very actively involved. I just had coffee with Joel this morning um, <laughs> talking about. Um, from uh, our past. Yeah, I, I will. And we were talking about value and quality in the wine world, and we agreed that Spanish wine is sort of, if, if global intrinsic value could invest in wine, we would we would own Spanish wine. Uh, oh. Really good quality, uh, but much better prices than uh, than you might find elsewhere. Um, but he's he's very involved. He remains, and he will remain so in, until next year. Um, Sam and Morgan are the lead co-PMs taking over from Joel, uh, but they're not new to the portfolio. Um, they have worked with Joel for 12 to 15 years, or in fact, hired by him. He was the last interview uh, on, on the way in, uh, have been mentored by him, and have been uh, named on the U.S.-based portfolio that we have for U.S. clients for, I think, five or six years. So yeah. it's a very, uh, there there will be no change in the quality, value, orientation of the portfolio. In fact, they are, they are co-lead PMs today as we speak. And as you can, as, as our clients can see, there's no noticeable change in sort of the tenor of the portfolio or how it's behaving in, the, in this very choppy market. Um, Solemn remains very involved, um, helping generate ideas for us from the, from the quantitative perspective and, and helping very much with the risk management as well on the portfolio. Uh, and uh, and, and I, we hope to sort of do more of these meetings in person as, as sort of this permits in, in, in the coming year. Oh, good. Well. We are, we're looking forward to that too. Thank you actually for taking us through your top thoughts on the big move yesterday, but ultimately the positioning of how you see things going forward. All the best. Thank you so much, Pamela. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.